Well, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to the London School of Economics and to uh, probably the 200 and something uh, public lecture of this academic year. We have, I think, a very exciting and stimulating evening in prospect, and we are particularly delighted with this event to be working with the Index of Censorship, who are launching a new issue of the Index, Privacy is Dead, Long Live, oh dear, my printer has um, uh, given out, Long Live Something. Um, <laughs> Open debate, perhaps, something of that order. <laughs> well, we have a sparkling uh, list of speakers, a uh, panel of speakers, and I'm going to invite John Kempfner, who is the uh, director of the Index, to say a few words and to introduce the speakers. John. Thank you very much uh, indeed, everybody, and welcome on behalf of Index um, to you all here. It's a great pleasure for us to be partners, partnering uh, the LSE, um, the first of many, we hope, and of the 200 or so events um, LSE have had this year, we promise you this will be the most erudite and the most exciting and the most feisty of all of them. Uh, we'd also like to thank our publishers, Sage, um, who are publishing Index's uh, quarterly magazine. Uh, fantastic publishers they are. For those of you who are not acquainted with us and with the magazine, uh, when you leave or when you've come in earlier, um, you will see uh, there is a table with the magazines, with subscription forms, and there are various ways of subscribing offline and online. Um, this uh, new edition of the magazine, which we are launching um, tonight, and the missing word is privacy. Privacy is dead. Long live privacy. Just to say a couple of housekeeping uh, points. Channel 4 are filming tonight, and LSE are filming tonight, so if you don't want to be filmed, I suggest you go home. Um, and uh, if you are tweeting, please make sure your mobiles are on silent, but the hashtag is privacy debate, and we uh, promise both um, on tweet and on Twitter and uh, in real life uh, it will be a um, uh, sparky and sparkling um, occasion tonight. Index is uh, the UK's leading and one of the world's uh, leading free expression organisations. Our aim is to shine a light on the black and white cases of abuses of, of free expression, of sen on censorship around the world in authoritarian regimes. Uh, sadly, um, these cases are just as plentiful and just as egregious as they have always been. We also shine a light on what we call the shades of grey, issues of offence, issues of confidentiality, um, issues uh, all around these grey areas now of what is a publication, Twitter, Facebook, etc. And no more issue is more salient uh, currently than privacy. Uh, we do a series of events in the UK and around the world. Some of you may have been at the Hay Festival uh, where we did a 900 sellout um, on the Bradley Manning case and the fallout um, from WikiLeaks. We did a sellout at Columbia University in New York. Uh, we have been in Prague. We're going to be uh, in uh, the Middle East, uh, in North Africa, um, following up on uh, some of our excellent work that we have been doing specifically in Tunisia and in Egypt 
and elsewhere. So we cover the waterfront um, and we do it in a way um, that is very relevant to today. We do it through the magazine, we do it online. Um, go online, visit us at indexoncensorship.org and we do it through our advocacy behind the scenes uh, publicly as well and we do it through our magazine. Our next issue uh, to be published on the 15th of September uh, is going to be on censorship in the arts. So uh, if you want to be part of us, you can also, you see uh, forms you have as well, you can also join us, be part of our newsletter, and you will find out, find out more about what we do. So as I say, tonight is about privacy. Now when you edit a quarterly magazine, uh, it's not always easy to um, work out, to predict what is going to be the salient issue in three, four, five months' time. But our fantastic editor, Joe Glanville, did just that. It's the issue of the moment. We have a fantastic panel uh, who she will introduce tonight. But first of all, I'd like to introduce our editor, Joe Glanville. Good evening, everyone. Thanks very much, John. Um, tonight, we're going to be discussing the proposition, Injunctions are a necessary evil. And I'm delighted to welcome a supremely well-qualified panel to take on that question. To my right, Max Mosley, the former head of Formula One, who famously won a privacy case against the News of the World three years ago, and he's now trying to change the law so that prior notification becomes a legal requirement, which means that newspapers would have to inform the subject of a story about their private life before running it. Now, he lost his case last month in Europe, but he's, he's indefatigable, I think, and is now seeking to have the case referred to the Grand Chamber of the European Court, so it's not over yet. Hugh Tomlinson, to my far right, is a barrister, a QC, a media law specialist. His notable cases include the landmark fight for the publication of MPs' expenses, where he represented Heather Brook. He's currently representing a number of the News of the World's phone hacking victims, including Sienna Miller, Ulrika Johnson, and Jude Law. And particularly pertinent for tonight's discussion, he's representing CTB, who was outed as Ryan Giggs, and he also represents Sir Fred Goodwin. To my far left is David Price, who is actually in the blue corner because he represents Imogen Thomas. He's a solicitor advocate, a QC, an expert on defamation <coughs> and privacy. He was also um, a rep uh, represented the writer Nima Ash in another very famous landmark privacy case. She wrote a book about the singer Lorena McKennett um, and was prevented from publishing a number of passages and David represented her in the appeal. Suzanne Moore on my left is an award-winning columnist who writes for The Guardian and The Mail on Sunday in 2009, she famously resigned in protest as contributing editor to the New Statesman after Alistair Campbell had the gall to edit the magazine as a guest editor. She stood as an independent candidate for Hackney North and Stoke Newington in the elections last year. Please welcome our panel. So each of our panellists is going to speak for five minutes, putting their position on the proposition injunctions are a necessary evil. Then we'll have a discussion, um, talk further about the detail of their arguments, and then we're going to invite you to join in the discussion. Max, could I ask you to speak first? Well, thank you very much, and for, thank you very much for inviting me. 
I'm going to assume for the purposes of the present discussion that everyone will agree that privacy or your privacy is a fundamental human right. We, if somebody disagrees with that, it's something we could debate later, but I think it would save time to assume that for, for the present. If that's the case, that's to say if privacy is a human right, then you absolutely have to have injunctions. Because once your privacy has been breached, once there's been an article or any sort of publication which reveals something private that you would normally wish to keep, keep private, once that's happened, no power on earth can make it private again. No judge can make it private. Once it's out, it's out there forever. Even more so in the modern time, because on the internet, you'll find that once it's there, it's very, very difficult to get it off. It's something that I'm attempting to do, and with some success, but to really remove it from the internet is almost impossible. So you have republication each time somebody Googles your name. Now, if one accepts that you therefore need to keep your privacy private, if it's to have any meaning at all, the only way that can be done is if somebody prevents the person who wishes to publish from doing so. And that requires either a system where people voluntarily do not breach privacy, or a system in which an injunction is available should you need it. Now, I cannot myself see any problem about an injunction. It's sometimes said that judges do it too easily, or people talk about celebrities issuing injunctions. Well, of course, that's nonsense. A celebrity doesn't, cannot issue an injunction. He has to go to a judge and ask him. Now, the law is actually weighted heavily in favor of the media, because in the Human Rights Act, Section 12, they've got a whole section which erects barriers to an injunction which are not there in the ordinary law of injunctions, the so-called American cyanamide case. In the case of a breach of privacy, you've got to show that you're more likely than not to win the case. Now, you don't have to do that normally with an injunction, so there's quite a heavy barrier. But the judge then, when you go to him, will weigh up your, your right to privacy against the public interest, if there be one, in the information being made public. And he has what they call an intense focus on this point and looks at every detail. And of course, that's one of the reasons why it'd be quite difficult to have anything much more than the privacy law we have, because every case is different. Now, to me, that seems fairly reasonable. Obviously, on the one side, you've got a right to privacy, but on the other side, you do, the public does have a right to know things that the public need to know in order to make the sort of decisions that members of the public have to make all the time. So that seems entirely reasonable. So then what, what's wrong with it? What am I complaining about, just to finish what I'm saying? I want prior notification because if you don't know, you can't ask for an injunction. What happens is the newspaper ambush you. This is what happened in my case. But the first I knew of the story was when somebody rang me and said, have you seen the news of the world? I didn't know anything about it until then. Now, if I'd known about it, I would have asked a judge for an injunction, and I'd almost certainly got one. But I didn't, so I couldn't. According to Mr. Dacre, 
the only 1% of cases involve no notice to the person involved. I think he may have been exaggerating slightly to try and convince the select committee in the House of Commons, but that was the point that he made. Now, it is only a small minority, but for those people, it's devastating. And the final point is this, that if you take the worst possible case, imagine that a newspaper filmed a perfectly ordinary but celebrity couple who were married or together in an hotel room making love. The newspaper then publishes this, puts it on the internet, and the first the victims know is when they see it in the newspaper. There is no remedy. When they go to their lawyers, they will be told, if you sue, it will cost you money, you'll get the publicity repeated all over again, and, it, and there's a slight risk you might lose, which would be even worse. Now, to have a system where there's no remedy for something like that is a, is a negation of the rule of law. It's absolutely extraordinary, but it's true. My case, the, which I won, I got record damages of £60,000. The newspaper were ordered to pay a high proportion of my costs, unusually high, more than 80%, £420,000. The bill from my solicitors was £530,000 sorry, £510,000, leaving me £30,000 out of pocket. Now, that is not a remedy. So when I said at the beginning there's no remedy in English law for a breach of privacy, that, if you like, is the proof. Thank you very much. David Price. Okay, uh, I'm going to approach this legalistically, not just because I'm a lawyer, but because we are talking about law. Um, Max says privacy is a fundamental human right, but what does that actually mean in practice? What does privacy mean in practice? What does human right mean in practice? Ultimately, the law operates on the basis of sanction. It has to have some force. And if you're asking whether injunctions are a necessary evil in the context of privacy, free speech, and a feral press, then you are talking about a legal sanction and asking why we need to have a legal sanction. If we have a feral press, it is because people like to buy newspapers of the type that some people would like to describe as feral, with stories that some may say involve trespassing on a person's private life. Now, the reason the tabloid press runs these types of stories and the reason why broadsheet newspapers follow them up rather sniffily is because people like to read about them. We're all curious, and we're all curious about sex. Uh, and if we want to live in a free society, then the only way to stop one person communicating information that another person wants to receive is by the law, essentially. And I think that's a very blunt and potentially dangerous instrument that has to be exercised with great care, and you have to be extremely careful about what you wish for. Um, law inevitably, and other, I mean, I said it's a blunt instrument, it involves sanction. There are other features of law which, are, which I think are relevant to this debate. The first is, law involve, involves cost and uncertainty. Now, you, you can't get away from that. And privacy law, and privacy as a concept, is particularly uncertain because you have to apply this intense focus to all the facts and you have to have this concept of a reasonable expectation of privacy that no one can predict and it's extremely subjective and you've come away from a system under the old law of breach of confidence 
which was essentially based on an obligation um, arising through an agreement that you would keep the information confidential. And that's something fairly certain uh, in contrast to what we have now. And wherever you have cost and uncertainty, it favours the rich over the poor because the poor can't afford to fight because they can't afford to take the risk. And therefore, the powerful in society will have the ability to use these laws in their favour. And it also involves a huge amount of self-censorship because people can't afford to take a chance. So they self-censor, and that's the chilling effect that you get from strong privacy laws, that people don't try and get the evidence to perhaps show that there's a public interest because there's such a huge risk involved in that process. Uh, another factor is that law is administered by judges. So in practical terms of the privacy law, it is the judges who decide what you can and cannot read. Now, the judiciary like to express it in terms of, this is a recent judgment, newspaper editors have the final decision of what is of interest to the public. Judges have the final decision of what, it is, what is in the public interest to publish. Well, essentially, that is censorship. I am deciding what you are able to read. Now, I don't want to be critical of any individual judge, and I think it's very easy to criticise it would be foolish for me to be critical of any individual judge. Uh, but I, I actually, I genuinely don't want to be. I, um, I know that might sound, sound very toadying. But um, it is also quite easy to criticise the decisions of others if you don't have to make that decision. But I think it is a fair point in this debate that the judiciary as a whole are unlikely to be the sort of people who read the Daily Mail or the News of the World or think that there's any inherent value in that. So you have a group, essentially a group of uh, well-educated um, people will have, who generally have a certain value system determining what the masses can or cannot read. Um, and I think the judges are particularly sensitive to arguments about children coming home from school upset. Now that may be a valid point, or it, it may not, but it, it's the sort of argument that a paternalistic judiciary is going to find extremely attractive. So it's, it's actually administered by judges, it's not administered by juries, it wouldn't be practical for it to be administered by juries, but essentially it's a power of censorship on the part of the judiciary. And then the final thing, as I'm coming up to my five minutes, is that the efficacy of the sanction, and therefore the efficacy of the law, de depends on, well, it, de it depends on whether you have the power to prevent the information coming out. Now information is not something that can be locked up. And the more the public wants to find the information out, the more it will come out. Because the law is restricted in terms of jurisdiction, so an order can only bite in this country. Um, it can only affect people who are frightened of the sanction, and lots of people aren't going to be frightened of the sanction. And it also creates a kind of schoolboy, schoolgirl effect, where the headmaster has said you can't read that, so suddenly everyone wants to read it. Uh, and that's what's happened. And then we have a ridiculous scenario here, where, where my client cannot refer to the person who is suing her, yet in the promotional material for this particular event, we have Hugh Tomlinson described as Ryan Giggs's lawyer. So we get into all these absurd situations. So I think that I, I'm not answering the, the question, do we need injunctions? I mean, clearly in certain circumstances we do. Doctors and patients, uh, solicitors, very defined circumstances where there's a, an agreement. And obviously in some situation that Max is giving of which a newspaper would never do in, in any case of some people who just happen to be having sex. <laughs> well, can anyone give me an example of a newspaper that has, has published some footage of two people in a hotel having sex without anything, any other accompanying material related <coughs> to it? Um, so, for all these reasons, I think if you're, going to answer the, if you're going to answer the question, yes, I mean, obviously it's yes to an extent, but you have to be extremely careful about what you're wishing for.
very much, David. Hugh Tomlinson. Thank you. Um, what we're talking about today are privacy injunctions and privacy injunctions against the press. Uh, and they are uh, necessary. They are an evil. Um, the reason they're necessary is the press, particularly in this country, trade in people's private lives. Uh, they buy and sell private information about individuals uh, for the purposes of attracting more readers. If there wasn't such a trade, um, injunctions of this sort wouldn't be necessary. Now, private life is a difficult concept. It has fuzzy edges, but I think its core notions are very clear. Uh, the court, people have referred already to sexual information, financial information, medical information. And it's a fundamental right, I would argue, that people should be able to choose which of that information they want made public. Um, some people may want to publish a lot about themselves. Some people very little about themselves. But it's their right to choose. It's not the right of the media. Now, it's a, this is a right which needs to be protected against the state. The state shouldn't be able to intrude into people's private lives without justification. It needs to be protected against multinational corporations, against the powerful generally. And one aspect of that is protecting against media intru intrusion. Now, that is, of course, subject to one absolutely fundamental point. And the absolutely fundamental point is public interest. Now, in the context of the recent debate about privacy injunctions and uh, um, affairs and adultery and footballers and so on, uh, there's very little being said about public interest. The boundaries of public interest, as the law understands them at the moment, are actually fairly clear-cut. They cover things like deceiving the public, exposing crime, protecting the public against risk to health or uh, to uh, life or limb, uh, um, exposing financial wrongdoing, exposing the unsuitability of people for holding public office. Uh, we can obviously debate where those boundaries might lie. I mean, there's a strong moralistic tendency in the popular press that says the public interest should include the exposure of adultery. Well, it's an argument. It's an argument that can be had. Maybe that's where the boundary should be put. But there's no real dispute that, as it seems to me, that private information should only be disclosed where there is some proper public interest to, justifying, uh, to justify that disclosure. There are also debates about what exactly constitutes private life. Again, those are perfectly proper debates to be had. But the two core concepts, private life and public interest, seem to me to be ones which are clear, which are generally accepted, and in certain circumstances necessitate injunctions to prevent uh, what is otherwise private information being published. There are two other points I'd like to make. The first is, of course, there are issues about the effectiveness of injunctions. Uh, um, in the context of the social media, and particularly in recent times, there have been all kinds of points that have arisen. But the fact that the law can't do something with complete effectiveness doesn't mean that, therefore, the law shouldn't try to do something about it. Most um, criminal offences, or many, are difficult to prevent, but the law tries to stop it happening. It equally, 
people uh, um, exposing private information where there's no public interest. The law should try and its mechanisms need to be strengthened. The second point I'd like to make is that um, this is an area which seems to me something that Parliament should be uh, intervening and bringing in a privacy law. Uh, the press have talked uh, um, about how it's judge-made law. What they don't mention is that they have been campaigning hard for over 50 years to prevent Parliament from bringing in a privacy law because they rather like the idea of getting away with it with a bit more uncertainty with judge-made law. I'm not suggesting that when Parliament lays down the law, if it did, it would be significantly different from the present. But I think what would be absolutely crucially important is it would have a democratic legitimacy. Parliamentarians would have considered it, they would have thought it through, they would have voted on it, and these issues would have been argued out. In the end, we may have something that looks rather like the sim rather similar to, to the present judge-made law, but at least it would be a law which would command general democratic assent. So, short answer is, yes, it's evil. We all prefer not to have uh, um, censorship of any kind. Uh, but, yes, it's necessary, and the reason it's necessary is because the British tabloid press trades in people's private lives. Hello. Um, I think I'm here because I represent the kind of parallel universes of the Mail on Sunday and the Guardian. Um, but I'm a columnist. I'm not here to represent um, the editorial line of either of those papers. I don't actually agree with Paul Dacre's line that what constitutes public interest is kind of what sells newspapers. But I'm very wary of turning this, as David said, into a broadsheet versus tabloid argument because um, we all know that the broadsheets pick up ironically two days later the tabloid stories and as I always say postmodernism means never having to say you're sorry um, my own position has changed on this over the years I mean I, I was you know in the, in the 90s I was very interested in media intrusion I was also interested in what constituted the public interest and as a feminist I was also interested in the mantra the personal is political so we were actually peeking into people's um, private lives um, and the news agenda changed, it um, became more tabloid, and it became, um, I think we shouldn't underestimate the significance of that. If you go back in time uh, to the to 90s, we were looking at Clinton, we were looking at a monarchy undermined by what was called go gossip. All that gossip turned out to be true. Um, even in the last few years, what we were told was gossip about the Blair Brown feud turned out to be true. So I'm not anti-tabloid in the way that some people here will be. Um, as politics has moved to the centre, I think what is happening is we're seeing the policing of morality, and I think that's probably where a case like Max's comes in, and the reshaping of news to constitute um, uh, a new agenda. And our notion of privacy has changed between generations. I would say that what we see through reality TV and through the culture that we live in is the means of production of celebrity, and we also now have the means of production of... Uh, um, actual information because we have the web. Now this is what's changed things. There is, to me, there are, there are parallel universes between what young people do and what regulators say they can do. The generation that controls the press and the law, I think has a, def a very different de definition of what is public and private. 
So the question then is who is the authority and how, how that is enforced? So when he said, well, it doesn't matter you know, whether you can enforce the law or not, you still have to make it. I mean, we clearly saw, we have seen with Twitter that it does matter. Um, do I think that people have the right to privacy? Yes, I do. Do I think the role model argument species? Yes, I do. I think it's ridiculous. I don't expect footballers to be role models. Do I think injunctions are necessary? Yes, sometimes. We all know the ones that are. They're the ones taken up by public authorities to protect children and so on. But the injunction, the where, where the press, I think, is in more in the mood with the public than either lawyers or politicians is the ones that the press are pushing are the ones taken up by rich men to protect their sexual affairs. Um, we may not like this, and newspaper editors certainly wouldn't like this scrutiny, but that's what's happening. And there is a problem here if it is not about judging people's sexual behaviour, but if people are paying for sex, they are at more risk of someone than selling that story on. I mean, this is just how it's playing out. Why do people feel no compunction of busting these injunctions? Well, I think now we have a kind of celebrity class that we project our stuff onto and then we shame them. Uh, the net is a place of uh, power without responsibility, and journalists are simply part of that. We have, we have a generation that assumes a right to know online. They, have the right, they feel they have the right to access information. At the extreme end, we have the right to hack in a kind of Asperger's way where we just hack systems and we do not care about harm to individuals. If you look at the WikiLeaks stuff with Assange, you know, that's the other end of the privacy um, debate. So I, I don't think this is simply about press freedom. It's about our whole notion of privacy, uh, which I think changed 10 years ago once we got mobile phones, once we had the net up, up and running. Um, people who run the net are very well, well aware of how they need to regulate it. They don't want to. Mark Zuckerberg talks about premature regulation. He's backing off from that. Sarkozy is saying they're going to regulate it. Cameron sits there on the day you bust the Ryan Giggs injunction saying, um, you know, what do we do? Actually, most 10-year-olds now are using... Yeah, my, my ten-year-old is online. Well, my cat is online. My cat has his own Facebook page. Um, how come these people in charge, judges, um, lawyers, they keep talking about Twitter as though it's some kind of, you know, other world? They don't feel any obligation to learn, to understand how social media works. My answer to this would be not with children would be to teach web literacy, not to censor things, but teach literacy and teach them about privacy. I teach my children about that. And the thing about the Twitter busting the injunction was that they didn't do it just for... People did not do that just for the hell of it. We had Prescott telling us it was an act of mass civil disobedience and calling everybody Twitters. What it pointed to was a need, was a need for greater transparency. Twitter, the medium, is the message. And those in power cannot afford not to know how this stuff works. I think there's incredible arrogance here about being able to legislate about social media that you yourself... It's not part of your world. In the end, I would always come out, um, I'm a journalist, I would always come out, I suppose, on the side of freedom, um, and I think that people who have grown up with a, a far uh, bigger notion of that they operate in public space, that they watch Big Brother, reality TV, I think their notion of um, freedom is different. I would hate a French situation, the recent uh, case with uh, Strauss-Kahn, with the French media at its elite, covering up that rape case... <laughs> You know, they protect their politicians, they work together. Um, I, I, I would much prefer the British situation. So, yes, I would come out with uh, for freedom over pri uh, privacy.
you very much. I'd, I'd like to start by going back to something, a point that you made, Hugh, which was about the debates of where the boundaries lie, uh, where that relates to public interest but also to privacy, because it seems that that is one of the problems and the difficulties in this debate. So that even though there are codes such as the PCC code as to what is the public interest, and as you described, you know, we're clear, we appear to be clear on what the public interest is. Just the other day, um, we had Mr. Justice Tugendhat apparently saying something very, very different and apparently shifting the goalposts. And, and I'll just read what he says, which was, it is in the public interest that newspapers should be able to report upon cases which raise a question as to what should or should not be a standard in public life. The public interest cannot be confined to exposing matters which are improper only by existing standards and laws, which seems to be a very different position on what is the public interest. So, and then just to look at privacy, we've seen um, cases in, in Europe where they seem to have redefined what privacy is. Surely that is one of the, the major problems in these cases and in, in this whole issue. Well, I don't think it's a problem. I mean, there's a dynamic social debate which is perfectly proper. Uh, and exactly where you draw the boundaries is something which people have different views on and is something you know, to which we can all contribute. And, uh, and, and you know, there's no, nothing is fixed in stone. And I'm in, entirely, you know, I'm, I'm sure everybody in this room is, 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 is interested in participating in such debates and seeing exactly where we put it. I don't think, uh, you don't need to say, oh, everything's as absolutely clear-cut, you can have injunctions, these are the bright lines, and we don't need to say anything more. I, 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 you know, I'm entirely... I mean, Mr Justice Tugendhat said that, that's a matter of debate. Uh, Strasbourg, has, 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 as you rightly say, I mean, had different notions of private life. Uh, uh, um, but, but I don't think any of that invalidates the, 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 you know, the fundamental core points that I make, that there's a core area of private life that actually most people agree on. And, and I think actually there's the, the some surveys which show that, that you know, teenage users of social media actually have quite strong notions of privacy, actually rather stronger than the, 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 than the, the next the, the generation, uh, uh, the older generation. I mean, it's, it's, uh, but there are interesting debates to be had, but I don't think... Uh, um, I mean, my, my concern is that we, you know, we begin with what we agree on and then we debate round the edges rather than saying because, uh, um, because some of the edges are blurred, therefore we just throw the whole lot out. We saw, I mean, a classic case, David, um, is the case of Sir Fred Goodwin where we saw a lot of anger um, and ultimately um, he was named in the House of Lords mm. around this where it appeared clear that it was a case that was in the public interest. Um, well, I mean, initially there was, there was a finding that there was, there was no public interest to it, and I think that, that does illustrate um, part of the problem that, that we have, what one has is acting for a defendant. I mean, the defendant has to make all the running, has to come up with the public interest defence, has to know, um, has to acquire evidence, has to persuade a judge. Uh, whereas if the information is published, then other things start to come out. So you often find that once, once, you, once something is written about somebody, more things come out. Now, in, the, in that circumstance, Fred Goodwin um, was in a position of responsibility, um, was presiding over a, a huge amount of taxpayers' money. He was having a, a, an adulterous sexual relationship at that time. Might that, that have had an impact on the way he was carrying out his duties? Um, some people might say yes, some people might say no. The other question is, do you confer a right on a man 
who's having an adulterous relationship to prevent anybody talking about it. I mean, you have to frame these injunctions. They're not just framed on the media. They're framed in absolute terms. And if the basis of that is protection of private life and protection of family life, and it's respect for family life, is it a good thing to have a scenario where males can get away with having sex with whoever they want and their wives can't find out about it? Um, and you get, you get ridiculous situations whereby well, he's, like, he's got an injunction for a, for a, for a footballer um, who's had unprotected sex with a prostitute. His wife phones up the newspaper to find out because she thinks it's him. <laughs> phones up the newspaper to find out whether it's him and the newspaper can't tell her. I mean, you've just got to think through some of the logical consequences of all this, really. I think one, one really needs to go back one stage, which is to answer the question, who decides? Because these questions are very difficult, and sometimes you get to the point where the balance between the public interest and the private interest is very, very fine. And who decides? Now, if you don't have courts and you don't have injunctions, it's decided by a tabloid editor. But we know what the tabloid editors are like. You, can only, you only have to look at Wapping and what's been going on there systematic criminality and it, it, it can be described as a criminal enterprise I've described it as that in front of their lawyers and I know they won't sue because they, <laughs> disclosure would reveal just how criminal they are might I suggest you cannot put these decisions which have huge effect on individuals lives in the hands of people who are prepared to employ, as the News of the World did with that man, Reese, convicted criminals. A criminal that was convicted of planting cocaine on a woman in order to get custody of her children for his client, who was a man. That man went to prison for seven years, and as soon as he came out, he was re-employed by the News of the World to continue doing the sort of activities he'd done. Now, if you can imagine having a newspaper that's prepared to do that, how can you possibly put anyone's privacy in the hands of those people? Well, I, I, it seems to me that the starting point, the people who are making the judgments, are the, are, are the people who buy the papers. If we live well, in a free society... <laughs> That's like, no, saying, that's like saying Tyburn's okay, or we'll hang people at Tyburn no, no, and we'll have bare pages just because some people will go there. Hanging is, it, hang, you know, that's, that, that, that's a, that is a, a, a different scenario. You have a situation where, I mean, I'm not saying that that should be the only test, but I think that's something that you shouldn't disregard when you're asking, when you're considering whether to, to legislate, which is that freedom of expression is a communication between two people, one person who wants to communicate it and the other person who wants to receive it. And I don't think it's reasonable to expect that, ju that, that journalists who are out there to try and find information have got to have impeccable moral character. I mean, isn't it better that we have a Good. feral... I mean, and if you want to say... Exactly, we live in a society where, Max, you can say all these things about the news of the world and good on you, and, and we can debate all these things about the conduct of journalists. But I would rather have a feral press, and I'd rather have a press which has disrespect for authority than a supine press. And I think that one of the things that has distinguished us in the, in the 20th century from other societies who've had real problems is that we have never had respect for people <coughs> in authority and we've been willing to satirise them, not to be worried about what we say about them, and that culture is a culture that we... If we move from a culture, that sort of culture, to a culture of deference, we do so at our peril, in my view. Yeah. <laughs> I go back to the point that you were making earlier, Suzanne, about 
what the tabloids write one day turns up in the broadsheets the next day. Um, and again, it's a point that David is just making, that there is a, we make this disjunction between what is in the tabloid press and what is in the broadsheets that isn't wholly honest. No, I don't think it is wholly honest. And lots of people say to me that they'd never read the Daily Mail and then proceed to tell me something that they've read in the Daily Mail. So I'm, you know, it happens all the time. Um, I agree with David about this thing about deference. Actually, the problem with journalism is there's been too much deference. That's why we had the banking situation. That's why we, the, we had the MPs, you know, expenses. I mean, journalists have, been, have had a lot of deference where they shouldn't have done. Journalists should be out there to push things. But I don't think it's just that people buy papers because they, they want to read tittle-tattle. This is something, as I said about the, the gigs um, injunction, you have to, for it all to function, you have to have a pact between the public and those in authority that we, we respect each other. People simply do not respect this law. They do not think that Ryan Giggs should get away with it. I'm sorry, they just don't. And I don't know what you're going to do, what law you're going to make, what moral code you're going to bring in to, to change that. Because when people just can switch, switch on a computer, see that information and pass it on in you know, two seconds, they will. Now, you, are you, how are you going to stop that happening? How are you going to stop it happening? You're not. So, you, you know, I just think that the people making the law are kind of living in another world, really. Hugh, Max, Max is take, you know, pursuing his case in, in Europe. Do you, do you think that if he ultimately was successful, would that make a difference? It would make some difference. I mean, there's, there's a wonderful, uh, of the many hypocrisies you find in the coverage of, uh, of, of, of this kind of thing in the press, I mean, that, that there's, a, that there's a wonderful little uh, uh, example. The press have been campaigning for a long time uh, so that they have prior notification of injunction applications. Um, and, and, and they've persuaded the Master of the Rolls' Committee to change the rules so that they have prior notification. But on the other hand, for them to give prior notification of they're going to publish, they say is completely contrary to the public interest and, and, and will cause, you know, the world will collapse. They uh, normally and, and, do. They normally do. You know well, well, I'm afraid I spent today doing a case where they didn't. Uh, uh, um, it's, it's quite common for them not to do it. Uh, um, but... But the, the, um, you see, the point about deference, um, I mean, of course we, we don't want a, a press that's deferential to authority, but the, 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 the press is attacking, uh, it's not footballers uh, um, or people like that that are making the decisions in this country. The press are being deferential to the politicians and attacking uh, the celebrities uh, as, as a kind of ersatz way of demonstrating their independence. I mean, it's, it's, it, the, the, you mentioned the, demo, the, the Dom, Dominic Strauss Khan uh, case. It's rather interesting. Uh, in fact, there was a book published about his sexual misdemeanours in France three years ago. There's not, nothing in French privacy law that stopped that publication. What stopped uh, um, more discussion of his sex life was the fact that the French press were being deferential towards authority. Now, the English example is rather one that's rather close to home. Uh, um, there's a, the phone hacking uh, story has been uh, very big in The Guardian and The Financial Times and The Independent. Uh, when the other day uh, um, there was a, a story about Jonathan Rees uh, uh, um, 
blagging the bank accounts of the Prime Minister and, and, and a member of the royal family. Uh, um, that was reported in virtually every newspaper in the world, apart from the Times and the Sun, uh, who, who were being you know, deferential uh, towards, their own, uh, uh, towards their own in this context. We, we get exactly the same phenomenon in the British press. The idea that we have a... Uh, that, 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 um, the, the, the attitude that the campaign of misinformation about privacy over the past three months uh, demonstrates our press being uh, not deferential to authority it, it, it is, I'm afraid, ridiculous. No, but I'm not here to defend News International, but there are, we have a lot of other newspapers. We can read these stories. All these stories are online. So however deferential the Times and the Sun were, you could read it elsewhere. Yeah, but that doesn't, that doesn't support the point. It doesn't support the point you're making. You know, the, the fact is that something you're trying to say, or David's trying to say, that we don't, we don't want a deferential press. It doesn't help at all to talk about what's online or not. The fact well, of the matter is... That yeah, online is where the press is. Yeah, I'm no, sorry. It's not... Well, anyway. Well, it's a, it's a can, point. Sorry. We, can, we, can we talk about the question of, of whether injunction, injunctions actually work? Um, and bearing in mind the cases that we've, that we've seen, uh, whether it's in the House of Lords, the House of Commons, or on Twitter, um, we've seen injunctions being challenged. And we've then seen an, an, a number of occasions recently judges saying um, yes okay the injunction's been broken online but that doesn't really really make any difference because it's much worse if you read it in the press and I'm wondering David um, how sustainable that is uh, well I think I have to be a bit careful considering that that issue is very much an issue in, in the case that I, I'm dealing with um, so I mean one thing I, think I can say is there's clearly a maelstrom, there's a, a massive power struggle that's going on at the moment um, between the uh, politicians, between the, um, and the media and the judiciary. And um, the judiciary relies on its power, and it's quite right that the judiciary should have power on its orders being respected. And I don't think, I think it's important to <coughs> respect an order. Um, and so one can understand when a politician disrespects an order that that is something that the court doesn't just want to say, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. So I can understand where the judiciary is coming from, and I think the separation of powers is extremely important. Um, so I think I'll just confine myself to saying that. If I may, I, I, I rather agree. But the, the thing is that when the, that first of all, that member of the House of Lords, I think it was called Stoneham, yes. and then there was a man called Henry in the Commons. That is something that is completely contrary to the entire rule of law, for a start, and the way in which this country works. And you, you simply cannot get the legislature overruling judges. And if somebody wanted to appeal against the judgment that had given the injunction, for example, in the Goodwin case, the proper course is to go to the Court of Appeal, where instead of one judge, you have three and then arguments of both sides are heard. What happened in both the House of Lords and the House of Commons, you get some publicity-seeking member getting up, revealing the name, and doing so without hearing the other side. And that's outrageous. And apart from the constitutional element, it is actually morally outrageous because they haven't heard both sides. So they simply set themselves up as a one-man court of appeal to overrule the, 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 what the judge did. In, for example, because I think we can mention in the Goodwin case, nobody knows, at least I don't know, 
what the nature of the affair was. It could have been something that was an hour or two a week, had no influence whatsoever on his work. <laughs> Or, or it could have been something going on morning, noon, and night in the boardroom, on the boardroom table. And unless you know which of those two things it is, you cannot form a judgment. Now, the judge had the advantage of knowing. The person in the House of Commons or House of Lords didn't, and that's why it's so wrong. But considering the position that Sir Fred Goodwin occupied, was it in the public interest to know whether it was one or two hours a day? In my view, unless there was some nexus between what he was doing and his work, in other words, unless you could show that what he was doing in some way influenced his judgment or what he was doing, to me, otherwise, it's no different from him playing a round of golf. It's not in the... (laughs) If it's that sort of level, it's no more in the public interest than, than literally the round of golf. Suzanne, do you think that it's, it's in, in, in relation to Twitter, if we are going to see more cases as we might of this mass civil disobedience where whatever the Attorney General Dominic Reed might say about making prosecutions, um, there's no way everyone can be prosecuted. Do, 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 you think there ha- do you think there has to be another remedy? Well, they can't be prosecuted. I mean, the... the um European head of Twitter said he was going to hand over names, but he didn't. So um, there are too many people. Um, I don't. Yeah, you know, I don't. I, I don't know. I think that this you have to have a kind of, as I said, a pact, and people have to respect these particular injunctions. No one's pushing to name children who have been protected by local authorities. John Henning and John Henning. Twitter, on Twitter. Well, Suzanne was saying that, I mean, mean, actually, John Hemming has also been naming people involved in children cases because he has a very strong campaign. He's he's obsessed with that. I mean, that's that's how he got into this area. And actually, there's a very strong online campaign to name children, I mean, to to do the whole, across the whole area. And it's not not just, if you look at the material, it's not just celebrities and, and injunctions. It's actually the whole, it's children, it's criminal cases, it's family cases. I mean, there... It's all there online. But I don't think that the, the public mood to bust the injunctions is, is centred on those. And the public mood is to bust the ones on, gu- rightly or wrongly, with the gu- guys who are having affairs. It's not true. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to uh, give some of you a chance to ask some questions. Um, and I hope we've got some microphones. Do we have... Yes, we do. So... Yes, it's gen- gentleman up there in the, wh- in the white shirt. Do you want to put your hand up? And if you could keep your questions brief, introduce yourself, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Uh, good evening. My name is Michael. Um, the, the internet is global, and I just wonder if the people who are in favour of injunctions, what are they going to do if somebody just sets up in Dubai, or sets up in Moscow, or sets up in New York, or any other jurisdiction, and just publishes all of this information from a jurisdiction? Elsewhere, I mean, I, I just don't see. I think Suzanne Moore is the only person who's really recognises all of this in the comments so far. Who would like, who would like to answer that? Well, I mean, th- of course, people can do uh, that kind of thing, uh, and then there are technical measures that can be uh, can be uh, um, taken to to block that information circulating. But what you can't have, I mean, you, you see occasionally on the on blogs. 
uh, um, people taking complete sort of absolutist positions. There should be no privacy at all. Uh, um, but you know, the, the answer to that is, well, okay, send me your bank details and I'll put those on the internet. I mean, everybody believes in some degree of privacy. Of course, you know, people hack into Sony, they get private information, they put it on the internet. In the end, you've got to have technical measures to stop that happening. I mean, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. Mm. Dave Allen Green, New Statesman. Are injunctions really the only remedy? Editors are making commercial decisions. Wouldn't a system of exemplary damages or accounts of profits be equally effective but not breach the publish and be damned principle? Nice. I think the, it's a good point. But I think the fundamental problem is with privacy that once it's made public, it's there forever. You cannot put it back again. You cannot make it private again. So whatever penalty you impose, all you can really do is have such a big deterrent that nobody else does it again because you find them 10% of turnover or something of that kind. But for the person who's actually suffered the breach of privacy, nothing to be done. So really, the, if, if you want, it, want something to be private, it has to stay private by definition. Can I? Yes. So it's, I mean, there's a very interesting sort of uh, um, background point here, which is often not, not discussed. The, the, the press is completely unregulated, in effect. Uh, uh, the broadcast media is very strictly re regulated. If the broadcast media interferes with privacy, Ofcom can fine them very large sums. I mean, you know, two million pounds. And the broadcast media, in general, doesn't interfere with people's private lives. And if the press was subject to similar regulation, but the, 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 then that would be an alternative remedy. But you've got to bear in mind the kind of sums. I mean, a, a, a really good top quality intrusive story is worth... The, I mean, I've had a case where someone was offered a million pounds for a story. I mean, you're going to have to start offering damages of several times that figure to, to, uh, um, to deter people, which completely changes the legal landscape. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. Um, Alain Gwindav. Um, a comment followed by a question. The comment is, I'm very interested to note that the three gentlemen in their opening um, talks all constructed this very much in terms of the press. Um, bearing in mind the reference to deference, you could construe, of course, that the public defers to the press as an institution of power. Um, Suzanne, on the other hand, was the only person really that made significant mention of the fact that the public have very wide access to the internet and the various media that that makes possible. So the question is essentially this, um, to whichever of the panel, where would you draw the line between the concept of publication and the concept of gossip? I don't mean gossip in the terms of devalued information, I mean gossip in the sense of one person chatting to another, which if we go back 20, 30 years, that might have been the water cooler moment. Obviously, the likes of Twitter means that's a hell of a big water cooler. Some of this is gossip, and I tried to say that at the beginning, that a lot of things that we were told were gossip turn out to be true. You know, we were told, I was told as a journalist, that the Blair, Blair and Brown got on fantastically well. You know, um, this... <laughs> The Alistair invention, Campbell. Alistair Campbell. The um, <laughs> but 
that you have to understand how politics is managed, how we have a lobby, how, pe how journalists do work a lot of the time um, with politicians and how that stops the public knowing what it should know. I mean, I'm, I'm concerned about that. What do I call gossip? Um, I think on the whole, um, a lot of the gossip that's exchanged on Twitter about celebrities or through Facebook or even in tabloids is fairly harmless, isn't it? Um, you know, um, but we get to a point where it is destroying people's family lives, their children, their reputations. Um, how do you stop it, though? The, the thing that uh, this is the other guy asked, I mean, Sarkozy said he wanted G8 to do something about it. I wonder if France is going to have its own like, internet and we're going to have our own internet. I mean, what are people really talking about here? Are we going to be China? Are we just going to block servers? No, we're not going to do that. So people have to get their heads around this new world. And when Max says the press is not online, it is online. It is online now. I'm sorry, I just don't understand it. Very quick point. I think the fundamental difference between the press and the internet is that on the internet you have to look for it to find it. You have to put the name in. The press, you buy your newspaper, and if it's a big thing, it's on the front page, but certainly you go through it, it's, it's fed to you, and I think that makes a huge difference. To me, Twitter is pub gossip, it doesn't matter, nobody takes it seriously. Anyone can You should write. take it seriously! Take it seriously, for uh, God's sake! Anyone could write it. Yes, they can, that's the whole point of it, it's democratic! <laughs> The thing is, anyone can write it, and if you took a newspaper and allowed everyone to write whatever they like, you get nobody would believe a word of it. One doesn't believe much as it is, but it'd be even worse then. David. Can I just, to be clear, where I'm coming from, I do think that enforceability of a sanction is really relevant in this whole debate. And I do think that, the, the, as I said before, the problems of jurisdiction, the problems of an injunction basically capturing everybody are things that we need to bear in mind as to whether we have these injunctions at all. Because the court cannot operate on the basis of different types of publish publications. It just makes a blanket order which stops anybody communicating the information at all. And, I do th and, and it's very difficult to see how the court can operate in any other way. Because it cannot tolerate a two-tier system. It cannot overtly tolerate it. I mean, it has to. But it, it can't accommodate that by its orders. And therefore, its orders are at risk of essentially being flawed because they don't prevent the information from being disseminated. Uh, Chris Polson, King's College. Um, on the one hand, you've, you've got David Price criticising the judiciary for having a slightly sort of... No, 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 no. I, well, I mean, sorry, <laughs> or criticising the, the slightly paternalistic view that judges have in, in you know, looking at morality. On the other side, people like Paul Dacre saying that the press has a historic role in, uh, in shaping morality by, you know, saying the things I don't enjoy. And then also, not that bishops go around breaking super injunctions, but you have clergy and legislature as well. So it just seems very unclear in Britain how morality is being shaped um, and how this sort of moral argument is, is actually being formed and people aren't really speaking about it. I think you've got to bear in mind, it's one thing to say that adultery is illegal. Obviously, that would be an interference with someone's private life. That would be the state preventing or criminalising some conduct. Well, what's being criminalised here is not the conduct but the, but the dis people talking about the conduct. And I think that gets lost in, in, a, in, in, in the debate. And we had an in, a really interesting situation, I think, in the, in the 70s, where you had a sort of combination of Lord Denning and Mary Whitehouse, Lord Denning being essentially a middle-class moralist, who was allowing the tabloids to get away with all this stuff. Um, because it, it basically it, it shamed people who were behaving in a way that he thought was unacceptable. Um, and... <coughs> 
so there was this sort of strange coincidence between freedom of expression and, and, and quite repressive views. And, and what we've got is a situation where everyone's being more liberal, which in many ways is a really good thing, but has led us to be all more repressive when it comes to talking about it. There's this weird morality um, that, that's going on here at the moment. Yes. Quick one. It depends whose morality, a little bit. You see, Mr. Dacre, when uh, writing about what I did, he described it as unimaginable depravity. <laughs> but it, it raises the question of what in his mind is ordinary depravity. <laughs> or perhaps even imaginable depravity. I mean, one can go on and on about it. But the, the trouble is, it's whose morality. And the fact of the matter is, if something's private and it's legal, there's a very powerful argument for leaving it like that. We all love gossip, everybody does, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's right to publish it. Uh, yeah, I'm Brian Hogan from uh, Student in UCL. I think the, the previous, uh, previous questioner um, touched kind of a lot on what I was going to say, but I think almost everyone has enormous sympathy for Mr. Mosley and thinks what was done to him by the news of the world is a travesty, but on the other hand are also extremely angry about Ryan Giggs and Fred Goodwin and so on. And I think that the common thread between the two is the element that they, they have wronged someone else. Mr. Mosey's behavior obviously hurt no one, whereas, um, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> whereas, whereas <laughs> I mean in the moral rather than the physical sense, but the, uh, whereas Mr. Giggs and Mr. Goodwin obviously were cheating on their wives, and I think, I think I think that it, it is that element of moral turpitude on behalf of somebody who's, who's um, in the public eye that, that, that really, the idea that they're using privacy to conceal immoral behaviour is, is what gets people's goals. And I wonder if the. Do, do you share Mr. Dacre's view that it should really only be done on a Saturday night with the lights out and the curtains drawn? No, it's I, I think it's, it's quite interesting in this. In, in this, what, one of one of the one of the, the the things that's often lost in the context of of, of injunctions is it's, it's assumed that that every uh, adulterous affair has the same form, uh, whereas in fact, I mean, there there are some cases where the husband and the wife are together and they want the injunction. There are other cases where it's the wife who is bringing the claim. I mean, people talk about it being a rich man's game, but I mean, actually, there are women who bring privacy injunctions as well. Each, each case has, has infinitely, has a different set of circumstances. And one of the problems is that in tabloidese, they're all re reduced to the same set of stereotypes. I mean, it's always the, you know, the, 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 the footballer who's playing away and the, and, 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 you know, and the, and, and the slapper he's having the, the affair with and, and so on. The, the, the range of sort of possible moral positions, which is actually quite complex in anybody's life, is completely blurred by sort of, uh, and, and people you know, say the, the public are outraged by all this, but I mean, the public don't actually know any detail about any of the facts of these cases. Uh, and, you know, all they know is the completely distorted version that they get from the tabloids. The Daily Star did 12 stories about uh, a client of mine uh, in successive days over the past two weeks. Every single one of them was invented. I mean, you know, it, it's just, the, the, if, if you take that as your uh, uh, um, 
window on the world to find out what's going on, you're going to be very badly misled. Um, yes, as, a, as somebody who has worked for almost 50 years as a fair or depraved popular press, my name is Anne Leslie, veteran foreign correspondent. Most of the time I was foreign correspondent, but I am associated with the Daily Mail. And actually, funnily enough, I'm proud of that. Because although you would regard Mr. Dacre as being, you know, devil incarnate, because he doesn't share your views on sexual morality, I don't care about your views, or his, frankly. But what you are proposing, and what you want, is to have a regulatory body. Now, I have spent uh, most of my life as a foreign correspondent. I've worked in over 70 countries so far, and I have seen what happens when the press is being controlled, even if it's not being controlled by law, because the consequences of offending, not just the government, but powerful and rich people, are so appalling that they go into what one editor in Africa told me was a preemptive cream. <laughs> you are so afraid. I can't say this because they'll be you know, bashing in my door, they'll be kidnapping my children, this sort of thing. And if, that, if we allow too much regulation to get rid of the nasty system the press, then I fear. And there's a wonderful play called Night and Day by Tom Stockmark, where there is a rather <coughs> old person, not unlike myself, in some African country. And there's an expat, posh woman, who he's arguing about why the press must be free. And she says, oh, I'm with you, the freedom of the press is just the newspapers I can't stand. <laughs> and then he says, yes, I know what you mean, because I started arguing about freedom of the press is part of the liberty of our society. And I'm banging my fist on some starlet's naked nipple. <laughs> but he said, all those stories are, I'm afraid, the price you have to pay the society has to pay for not having a row of Max Mosley uh, approved of regulators, because that way, honestly, you know, oblivion for a free society. Well, first of all, I don't. First of all, I don't think that Paul Dake is the devil incarnate. I see him as a rather prudish old fuddy-duddy, and that's as far as I would go. But I think the point you make, of course, about the press in totalitarian or semi-totalitarian societies is absolutely true. We desperately need a free press. What we don't need is a press that abuses the power that they have. And that, of, no, you've had your say, and now I'd like to have mine, thank you. The, uh, <laughs> the, the, what they do is that they, they completely abuse the power they have, and you have the Murdoch press, where Mr. Murdoch's not even a Brit, sits in New York, dictating to the government here, and even the police, what they can and cannot do. The only thing between us and a Murdoch dictatorship is the judiciary. Unfortunately, they're up for it. But it, one cannot over, overstate how serious that situation is. When the press are in a position to do whatever they like, they consider themselves above the law, and they're now deeply shocked that just perhaps they may be brought to account. Thank you. <laughs> 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 
criminality than probably any other newspaper proprietor in the world. If you like the criminality, by all means. Personally, I don't. Thanks. <laughs> And then the gentleman up there. Um, hi, Priya Shai. I'm a sixth form student. Um, there's been a lot of focus on like injunctions with sex scandals and things like that, and I just wanted to offer like an alternative viewpoint. Um, there's a case where a woman was seeking euthanasia for her um, minimally conscious daughter, and this received a super injunction. And I was just saying, looking back to history, like maybe with the case of Brown versus Topeka, with the Black Civil Rights Movement, which was like rallying loads of support and making like um, momentous change. If um, we put super injunctions on cases like this, and surely we're limiting the amount of debate and popular support which you can like um, encourage about like controversial issue, issues such as euthanasia. And I, I think, as a teenager myself, I rather hear about a case regarding euthanasia than some sex scandal. Like, does anybody want to come to that? Okay, and thank you. And gentlemen up there. Tom Island. Um, I work at the LSE. Um, You've all said that injunctions are necessary, but you've also, um, we've all seen that uh, with the internet and people spreading information that way, that they are becoming harder and harder to enforce. So I don't agree with Suzanne saying that the public will only band together to reveal information about um, adulterers and scandals. There are people out there who will reveal all information, even stuff which all of you have agreed does need to remain private. So. If they are a necessary evil, what's going to be done about the injunctions that you all think should be allowed? How can they be enforced? Um, well, I mean, the, pra the practicality is that, um, I mean, Suzanne, I, I entirely agree with her point. In, in the end, society only works if there's consent. And people have, got to, uh, people have got to come together to reach some consensus as to how the internet should be operated. It's quite, I mean, it's, the internet has changed the media game completely. It's destroyed the mainstream media. It's destroyed its economic base. And in the end, it will destroy physical newspapers. I mean, they will be only digital. But the, the, uh, some social consensus has got to be reached as to how it should be regulated, how it should be dealt with. And that's a, a difficult, pragmatic question which will take several years to work through. I mean, in, injunctions are quite flexible, and unlike what David says. I mean, the, 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 there are injunctions which can concern only certain sorts of publication. Some of them work a bit, some of them don't work at all. I mean, these things need to be worked through. And in, in, in the end, a, a new social consensus will be reached, which works for most people. I think also, perhaps as a society, we, we might have to just toughen up a little bit. I mean, and, and have to um, deal with the fact that, that sometimes if you do something or if something happens, then that may come out at some point and maybe regulate your behaviour. So either you're doing things that you're not ashamed about, I mean, and don't care if anyone finds out about it. If you, if you that's the same argument that's used by secret policemen everywhere in the world. If you don't, if you, if, well, you, if you're not, you shouldn't be afraid of you shouldn't be afraid of your phone being tapped. You shouldn't be afraid of people having cameras in your houses because if you've got nothing to hide, it doesn't matter. No, I think that that's a complete misrepresentation of what I said. <laughs> He is a lawyer. He always does it to me, of course, as well. <laughs> so are you. <laughs> and so, ladies, just Hello, thank you. Um, I, I'd love to pick up on that last point, but actually, I want to make the point that I personally believe that injunctions are very necessary, 
but I also would like to believe that they don't actually need to be as evil as, as I see them today. Um, as I understand it, the, the way the law is framed, it relies on the subjectivity of a single judge to come to a decision um, in what we have heard is a culture of some patronising paternalism uh, that can allow the real evil of one person's human rights being totally denied at the expense of someone else's. So that a defendant, and we're not only talking about newspapers here, that's a really helpful and convenient smokescreen, I believe, for the reality of what is happening in uh, the, the Queen's Bench Division on occasions, is that um, that defendant will never be allowed to speak freely about parts of their lives. Uh, and they will have that right denied to them because someone else needs to protect their public image from exposure of their private duplicity. If the judiciary are always making our decisions for us, how will individuals ever take responsibility for their own actions? Can I just say something? I mean, that, the case of McKenna and Ash established that effectively private information was property. So if you have a shared experience with somebody, that becomes the other person's property if they're more famous than you. And I don't understand how you can treat um, someone's experience as a piece of property that someone else can restrain just because they're more famous than you. Well, I was just thinking of um, where we could agree, actually, not disagree. I think most people... Um, Go out there. So I, do, I do know that people will spread all sorts of bad things, as well as you know these uh, lesser injunctions on on Twitter. But on the whole, that's not that's not been happening so much. Where we can agree, I think, is when you talk to most people, they say businessmen and politicians are fair game. Um, celebrities, not so much. Um, I'm thinking of a, a case that my paper did. Uh, Lord Brown, head of BP. People, on the whole, supported that because they could see that his lies and his covering up of an affair had influenced, um, you know, his business. And we were, you know, BP's shareholders had a right to know this stuff. So when you get cases like that, you see that the public is not actually as feral as it's sort of made out to be. People understand why somebody in a position of power has covered up something they don't like it, um, and they they feel the same way about politicians. I mean, the blurry area is the celebrity area, isn't it? I mean, I, I think most people are fairly happy with the press going in really quite heavily with um, people who you know, use taxpayers' money. That's it. Um, thanks. I'm Steve Barnett, University of Westminster. Um, I, a couple of comments, first of all, on social media. Uh, I think there are some misconceptions um, which we probably ought to address. Suzanne, uh, I think you painted a, a bit of a caricature of um, our, our leading judges still working with quill pens on old manuscripts. I suspect one or two of them may even have their own Facebook pages and are well aware of, of, of social media and online. <laughs> maybe, maybe not you, but I know one or two, I know one or two who do. Um, let, let's be clear, we're, we're actually talking here about media power. Where does the power lie and where is the power of publicity? Uh, and it's absolutely true that um, you can spread a name on Twitter or via online very quickly, the number of people who are actually exposed to that particular name is a fraction of those who will hear it either through the broadcast or the print media. But perhaps more importantly, you've really got to be pretty imaginative 
to give the details of Ryan Giggs's sex life in 140 characters. Uh, over seven, over picture, 17 pages with a special pull-out supplement of a tabloid newspaper, I think is rather different. And that's what tends to get spread around. So uh, you may or may not be right about the future of the tabloid press. I, 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 I think I'm rather more sanguine, or some would say pessimistic about it. I think it'll survive. But there is no question that... Um, there's no question that at the moment that is where the real power lies in terms of spreading news. Can I just say one more thing about um, regulation? Another caricature, Anne Leslie, who I've always admired for years and years, fantastic, fantastic journalist, but there are ways and ways of regulating and you don't have to raise the spectre of some kind of totalitarian regime to understand that there are possibilities to backstop regulation when a particular institution is out of control that could work. And I would only ask you to remember there was only one journalistic organization who found out the truth about weapons of mass destruction. That was real journalism practiced by the publicly funded broadcaster, very heavily regulated. Thank you. Susanna, do you want to Does anybody want to come back in at this point? No. Um, there's a question uh, just there. The gen- no, 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 behind you, sorry. The gentleman just there. Thank you. Hi. I'm Ben Finn. Um, no one's talked about phone hacking, which I thought was rather surprising. And I wonder, because it's a very closely related issue, I wondered if anyone thinks that freedom of the press ought to extend to freedom to hack into people's phones in order to find out this private information, except in very extreme circumstances. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because uh, um, Paul M- Mullen, I- 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 the journalist at the, who's, who's made the biggest sort of confession about this, that from the News of the World, the one who was taped secretly by Hugh Grant and, uh, 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 a, few, uh, a couple of months ago and then published in the New Statesman, he runs a public interest justification. He says, I use, I use phone hacking to expose gangsters and, 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 and you know, wrongdoing and so on. And you might say uh, uh, the press uh, could, in certain circumstances, use illegal methods to expose wrongdoing. The practicality is, I mean, the... the, the in relation to news of the world phone hacking, the names of something like 50 victims have now come out, and not one of them involved any exposure of wrongdoing of any kind. It was all celebrities and sportsmen and sports agents and so on, yes. and, 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 and members of the you know, royal hangers-on of one form or another. Uh, but the, 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 um, so, so the, the, um, the use by the, by the press of... Uh, f- uh, phone hacking it is, I'm afraid, just one, uh, you know, rather unpleasant uh, uh, criminal side of their general activities in relation to uh, the trade in private information, which is the, uh, the essence of the tabloid newspaper. I mean, I don't think anyone would defend a criminal act as, such as phone hacking, but it's what you make of it. I mean, in this debate, it's become so polarised that somebody will take phone hacking and then say, therefore, we need injunctions. Or perhaps I could even say with me, I could give the example of the wife who phones up the news of the world to find out if it's, if it's her husband and can't be told. I mean, there's all extreme examples at every end of the scale, and you can reduce any argument to absurdity. But just because there has been phone hacking, which is a criminal offence and should, it should be punished accordingly, doesn't mean, therefore, you've got to have a whole regime of privacy injunctions. 
two to me don't seem connected. Well, it's also, I mean, you've got this weird liberal position where you're at totally hate phone hacking and love WikiLeaks. Um, if I may, there is another side to it, which is that <clears throat> on the one side, you get millions of newspaper readers who get some slight entertainment from the revelation, private information about somebody. But for the person concerned or the family concerned, it can be very serious. There are two well-documented cases of people committing suicide because the news of the world exposed them. And it's very easy just to dismiss the effect on the victim. But it can be catastrophic. So is it really right for the sake of a little light entertainment on a Sunday morning to put somebody or some family through the most appalling pain? Personally, I don't think it is. It really goes back to bear baiting, to Tyburn, to all those sort of things. People will read it. I will read it. If I had nothing better to do, I would read the news of the world. I probably would. People who buy it, I think they do so because they've got an inadequate sex life. I can't see any other. <laughs> I can see no other explanation. But that said, if, it, it is, it, if it's lying there and you've got nothing else to read, you'd probably well, it's read it. fulfilling the social function, then, if people are having an hour. <laughs> <social function. laughs> They're getting their kicks in the news of the world. Right. <laughs> okay, we've got time for two short last questions. Um, gentlemen there, yeah. and then a gentleman up there. Well, it's a nice introduction to my comment because David Price started, well, if people want to read about sex, um, you know, they should, you know, tabloid press should, should be there. But I think it would be in the public interest, as Max Mosley said, to have more sex and not read about it. Um, but uh, I think... <laughs> I think if we go more generally about the, uh, you know, the public interest, I think the role of the press, the reason why we have given you know, them the power of you know, freedom of speech at that is to you know, engage the public with civic engagement and participatory democracy. And any time you know, that the public will read this tabloid press about you know, Max Mosley or Ryan Giggs is not spent about you know, what type of democracy you want to live in. And I think, on the other hand, you know, David Price also, if you are going to say, well, if we want to read about it because it's a commercial interest, do you support pornography and do you want to legalize prostitution? Uh, well, you're, you're, jumping a, you're jumping a few steps there. All I, <laughs> the um, all, all I said was... <laughs> I didn't slag any judges off, just for the road. And all I said was that in determining whether there should be injunctions, you have to take into account the fact that people want to read these newspapers. And you have to cater for that. And I think... Um, you, you, you can't just say, well, we think they should be reading something else. Let's ban the news of the world so they can all educate themselves on something lofty. You know, what sort of society is that that we want to live in? People should be able to make a choice. And I do think there is some educational value about learning things from other people's private life. It may not be very fair. <laughs> it may not be very fair, but I think we all learn. We learn, from, we learn about life from our own experiences, and we learn about life from our friends' experiences that we talk about, and we learn about life from other people's experiences. And there is, when you do read, a, I mean, take the CT, I mean, take the Ryan Gig story with his sister-in-law. Uh, those sorts of stories, and when you see him on the television, when you see him promoting a particular type of, of, of image and saying that he's now he's settled down, he's extended his football career, and then you see that and you put that all into context, that tells you something about the modern world. It is, has some element of educational value to it. it has a, it's a little morality tale that helps us form our views about the world. David, thanks. And one very last short question over there. 
Yes, just been interested in the panel's views on the Andrew Marr injunction in comparison to the Ryan Giggs injunction, because we immediately didn't seem to pursue the Andrew Marr injunction, though it was out on the internet, but have pursued the Ryan Giggs. And I just wonder what the panel thinks about that. could finish with just a very quick, pithy <laughs> response to that, if it's possible. No? Okay. Max? <laughs> Sorry, I, I, he's my client. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know about anything. <laughs> Freedom of speech. Well, that was always a strange one because everybody in the media knew it, and then, and, but the public didn't know it. And um, we have the same with certain politicians' stories that have been covered up that everybody in politics or in the lobby knows. Um, and I don't ever really, I know I, I'm a columnist, but I never really understand where these agreements have ma are made. And I don't like the way the lobby works to cover up certain things. And um, I, I know Andy and I like Andy, but I think the, the media knowing it and not the pit and people not knowing it was never good. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Okay. No justice <laughs> Well, thanks for being such a brilliant audience. I'd like to thank our fantastic panel, Hugh Tomlinson, Max Mosley, Suzanne Moore, David Price. <laughs>